The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning, church. I want to take one second. To, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe it is Greg and Danielle's anniversary. Is it not? All right. Happy anniversary. <clears throat> Every once in a while, I can be good about putting things on the calendar. Uh, but good morning, church. My name, as I said earlier today, is Kelly Graham, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at Grace. And right now, I have, um, have to make this mental leap from, from singing and leading worship to now preaching, but I love to preach the word, so thank you for entrusting me with this privilege. I do not underestimate the privilege that this is, to open up the word of God and preach its truth to our hearts. I get to tell you about Jesus and the wonderful works that he has done for us, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. But to get us started, I'm going to share a little bit about my own interests. This is going somewhere, I promise, I'm not the kind of pastor that makes a sermon all about myself, okay? But I do think it's helpful to just give you a little bit of my personality and my interests here. I can get a bit excitable about a few things. When I love something, I tend to love things very, very deeply. Like I love my family, just like many of you, and I, I get excited about my family. I love some simple things, like I love smoking meats, like a pork shoulder or a brisket. That's one of my joys in life. I love birds. You heard me right. I love birds. I admit it. I'm a bird nerd. I have bird feeders and I sit there and watch them. I look for new species to check off my list. Yeah, I'm a, I like birds, it's weird, I know. But I also love a good novel. So Leif Inger and Wendell Berry, some of my favorite novelists, I can get into a good novel. And of course, as you've probably guessed, I love music. I don't just love any music though. I, 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 I'm only, like, I listen widely, but I only, I'm only loyal to a few. I want them to have great instrumentation and, and thoughtful or beautiful lyrics. I want them to be just as good live as they are on their recordings. And I'm a loyal fan of a band called Watch House. Um, they used to be called Mandolin Orange, but that's a silly name, so they changed it. And they are a folk and Americana band that checks off all of my boxes. It took some time. But Carissa is also now a, a, a rabid fan as well. And back in September, uh, we saw them live in Berkeley, California for my birthday. And something hit me very clearly at the beginning of that concert. They were so much better than their recordings. So much better. They were likable people. They were immensely talented. And I became more than a fan. I became what I would call an evangelist for Watch House Band. And everything I knew about them was true and more. People had, had told me how good they were, and I became a fan. I started listening to them. But as much as I was already a fan, I felt like after seeing them live and experiencing it, 
in a very interesting way, I felt like I belonged to the truth of their musical worth. I wanted other people to know about it. And that's probably the best way I can explain it. But all the people who expressed just mere appreciation for Watch House didn't seem to know what I knew. And you can't just appreciate them. Their music is lovely. And they're the real deal, the genuine article, the real McCoy. And sometimes, experiencing a person or a place or a thing will blow your good assumptions out of the water and just draw you into awe, right? Another quick example, I won't go very far into this, but my dad and my mom went to the Grand Canyon years ago, and when my dad talked about it, he talked about it with a sense of reverence at its beauty. And I knew that it was going to be beautiful, but when I got to see it years later, then I understood. It's basically a sanctuary of the glory of God to go visit the Grand Canyon. All that to say, there are certain things that people have high opinions of, but experiencing the truth up close is, is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Well, today we're going to talk about the moment that Peter and the disciples first confirmed their belief in Jesus' identity, the moment they expressed vocally their awe that Jesus was the genuine article better than anyone else could have imagined. And when you read Peter's confession, I feel like when you read it, the ground should shake under your feet. The disciples had seen enough. They were no longer merely impressed. They confessed that Jesus was who he seemed to them to be. And coming off the heels of Jesus doing a miracle by multiplying five loaves and two fish for well over 5,000 people, we come to a very important time in the Gospel of Luke. The disciples identify Jesus as the Christ of God. Now, I'm sure many of you know this, but I'm going to give you a refresher. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew language Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are the same thing, and it's a, it's a word loaded with meaning for the Jewish community. And what I need you to know right now before we enter into this is that when you hear the word Christ, Jews would normally think of a king that comes from God to overthrow the existing rulers and, and establish a new government under God's rule. That's the gist of it. There's way more to it than that, but that's the gist of it. And that's probably what Peter had in mind even when he confessed Jesus as the Christ. So pay very close attention when we read this text because it is clear to Jesus that he's, he needs to redefine for the disciples what kind of Christ they should be expecting. So let's read the passage and then we'll pray. We'll go into Luke chapter 9 verses 18 through 22, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, the one, the pro one of the prophets of old has risen. 
And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text and we look at this ground-shaking truth that now the disciples are confessing that Jesus is the Christ, I pray that we would recognize this as as a moment that whether we've known Jesus for years, whether we've known you for a day, or whether we don't know you, now is the time to live in the truth that Jesus is the Christ because we so often forget And I pray that you would make Jesus more beautiful in our eyes this morning than he was yesterday. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So, Jesus just performed a very public miracle, and now we see Jesus praying. We have no idea what he was praying to the Father, but Jesus is seen praying often in the Gospels, especially before important events. And an important event is coming up, the Transfiguration, if you're familiar with it. And he finishes praying and then turns to his disciples to ask them a question. Now, if you're experienced in reading the Bible and reading especially the Gospels, you'll know that when Jesus asks a question of anyone, the question is leading the conversation somewhere. He doesn't just ask questions from ignorance. So when you see Jesus ask a question, know it's going somewhere from there. He asks, who do the crowds say that I am? And as Greg pointed out recently, King Herod had the same question. Who do the crowds say that Jesus is? And the answer was repeated by the disciples here. It's the exact same answer. They're either saying that you, Jesus, are John the Baptist who would have had to have been a resurrected John the Baptist because at this point, he's already been beheaded. Or he's Elijah, a prophet whose ministry was very similar to Jesus in a lot, of, a lot of ways. You can look that up if you're interested. He never died, though. He went away in a fiery chariot. So, you know, kind of expect him. He might return sometime. Or maybe they just thought he's just a resurrected prophet of old. Now... These were very common hypotheses about who Jesus was at the time. Lots of people were talking about Jesus. King Herod's talking about Jesus. The people are talking about Jesus. He was causing quite the stir. I mean, he just fed thousands of people with a miracle. But then, after getting his answer, he, Jesus, asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And the you's emphatic there. He's asking, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman for the disciples, replies with a very true statement. He says, the Christ of God. In other words, the King, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for all these years. And then Jesus tells them to keep that news to themselves while giving them a very different picture of what would happen to the Christ than what they would have expected. Now, there's a whole lot 
to unpack here, but I'm going to give you one very succinct thing I call a biblical truth. I do this often when I preach. I hope it helps you, it helps me to stay on track with the text, um, but this is a very brief thesis or summary of the text, the passage that we're looking at. And every, everything that we're going to talk about today is going to have to do with this truth from this text. So here's the biblical truth that I would like for you to take away. Jesus is the Christ who suffered and rose from the dead according to God's plan. Jesus is the Christ who suffered and rose from the dead according to God's plan. This is history, this is true, this is reality. Now to make this case from the text, we're, we're going to go exactly where I said we're gonna go. We're gonna go straight to the scripture. So I'm going to give you three supporting truths from this passage that will help us understand that Jesus truly is the Christ. Now here's our first supporting truth. Number one, Jesus isn't just a person, he is God incarnate. Jesus isn't just a person, he is God incarnate. The Christ of scripture is no mere man. Already in Luke's gospel, Luke has been establishing the identity of Jesus as the Christ. Jesus, for example, already way early in this gospel, has already been proclaimed the Christ by the angels at his birth in chapter 2, verses, verse 11. And this is what the scripture says. The, angel to, the angels are telling the shepherds this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's already been proclaimed the Christ in this gospel. And again, Luke, the author and narrator of this book, tells the story of Simeon meeting Jesus in the temple when he was a little boy. And when Simeon meets Jesus in Luke 2, 26, this is what it says. It says, and it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he proceeds to meet Jesus and blesses him as the Christ. Yet again, this is an interesting one. The demons declare that Jesus is the Christ in Luke 4, 41. Demons came out of many crying, you are the son of God, because they knew that he was the Christ. That's explicitly what it says. The demons are acknowledging this. I think they had some malicious intent in that, but they were acknowledging it. And yet again, Jesus indirectly declares himself the Messiah when he reads the Isaiah scroll in Nazareth. You may be familiar with that story. He read the scroll and sat down and everybody was silent. Whoa, what was that about? Jesus seemed to call himself the Messiah. Well, this, this is the reason that Luke wrote this gospel, so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ. And so that we would know that he was who he and the angels and the demons and now the disciples know him to be. And Jesus is the Christ, the genuine article, better than anyone could have ever imagined. Now, we learned what the crowds thought that Jesus was. It was either John the Baptist, Elijah, or the prophets of old. That was Jesus' first question. They had many misconceptions about Jesus' identity. They thought that Jesus was great, right? You know, prophet, 
That's great. That's a great person for Jesus to be in their eyes. They thought he was a prophet, and that's pretty cool. He certainly was. Deuteronomy 18, 18 points to a prophet who would be greater than Moses. I believe that was talking about Jesus. But is that all that Jesus was? See, merely a prophet like any other prophet who is just a man? The answer is no. He was not merely a prophet. As we already saw, the demons called him, Jesus, called Jesus the Son of God. That's, that's no mere man, right? And the, the angels, when they proclaimed Jesus Christ, they didn't just stop at Christ, they proclaimed him Christ the what? The Lord. Christ the Lord. And the crowds knew that it was undeniable that Jesus was from God, because so they called him a prophet. But they did not have eyes to see that he truly was the Son of God and still is today. Now we know, we know, looking back, seeing the whole story, we're privileged to see the whole story of Scripture, we know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But before we get too proud of ourselves, I think this is a really good time for us to reflect. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have all demoted Jesus in our minds. Functionally treating Jesus not as God, but as a mere man with wise words. Are you like me? Can you relate? I've known and recognized Jesus since I was eight years old when I first proclaimed him as my Savior and Lord. I'm 40 now, and there are still times that I have difficulty trusting that Jesus is God when the rubber meets the road. I sometimes forget that he's trustworthy and in control, and therefore I hold him sometimes in less esteem than he deserves. I think you could probably relate. We can sometimes do that. But the truth is, and I'll say this a hundred times, Jesus is the Christ who is God incarnate. The crowds looking on could not reconcile Jesus as the Messiah with their preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be. And they should have probably looked more closely at the book of Isaiah because the book of Isaiah shows us exactly what to expect with a humble king. But Jesus didn't seem like a king to them. But make no mistake, Peter and the, and the disciples were correct. What Peter had been told about Jesus and what Peter had seen with his own eyes, wonders and miracles, and the character of the man who was standing before him it all lined up and he had a front row seat. Just like when I experienced my favorite band in person the first time, I was awestruck and on a far greater level, the disciples had this realization being in front of him and experiencing him and saying, with awe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ of God, and Peter was close enough to see it. But he's even more wonderful. This is the truth, church. He is even more wonderful than Peter could have imagined when he made that confession because Peter didn't know all that Jesus was going to do. And that leads us to our second supporting truth. 
to show us that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, Jesus doesn't just proclaim the good news, Jesus is the good news. He doesn't just proclaim it, he is the good news. I'm going to read once again uh, verses 21 and 22. This is immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now, we'll get to that part about being strictly charged and commanded by, the, uh, by Jesus not to tell anyone that Jesus was the Christ. But for now, let's focus on how Jesus describes the role of the Christ, his work. What would the Christ be like according to the Christ himself? The work and the circumstances of Christ were probably pretty confusing to Peter and the Jews with their own assumptions. Because even though they knew that Jesus was the Christ, it seems like they were waiting with bated breath for him to put on his crown and destroy the enemies. If you've read the whole, whole book, you probably recognize that. But this, this is how Jesus describes his future. The Son of Man... Jesus is Jesus' favorite name for himself. The Son of Man must do a number of unusual things. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. Then he must be resurrected. Now, with what I've already taught you about the Jewish expectations, does that... Does that seem to jive with what the Jews and maybe even Peter understood about the Messiah? What's the answer? No. <laughs> you can talk back to me if you want. No, they expected a warrior king. They wanted vengeance against the idol-worshipping Romans. They wanted a king like David. They wanted a king who was powerful and majestic. But according their measuring stick, Jesus was none of those things. Now sure, he, he fed a lot of people with a miracle, but we want an insurrection. <laughs> now sure, he healed the sick, but we want to see the fall of Rome. We, sure, he, he raised someone from the dead, but <laughs> we want to be in power. It's kind of the sentiment when you look back of the Jews. I don't fault them. I understand where they're coming from. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that he's, uh, he accomplished all of these things, but in a greater way. They never expected to receive the humble Christ that they received. But he still accomplished what they hoped he would accomplish just in a greater way. So let me explain. Jesus would be, bring an insurrection, but his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus fights a better war than the ones the Jews wanted him to fight. Jesus 
would rule over the Roman Empire, but his rule would use the Rome as a pawn for the spread of the gospel. If you're not familiar with the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, and what that did for the spread of the gospel, you should look it up. It's an incredible thing. He is, his kingly wisdom was on another level altogether. And Jesus would bring the power that they wanted, but his power is made perfect in the weakness of his people. You see, Jesus looked like a mere prophet because they didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. The veil described in 2 Corinthians 3.14 that covered the Jews' eyes was in place and they needed Jesus to remove it. They believed that Jesus was a mere man, a mere prophet. But church, I have news for you. Mere prophets only proclaim the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the good news. And the prophets of old were proclaiming him. <laughs> How do I know that Jesus is the good news in actuality? Well, Let's look at that description of the horrific things that Jesus would have to go through and see how those horrific events are good news for us. Let's go through each one of them, suffering and dying and resurrecting. Later in Luke 23, Jesus suffered as he foretold in today's passage, and when he suffered, he suffered for us. We deserve to pay that price that he paid for us. He, did, he suffered at the hands of Rome and at the Jewish, hands of the Jewish leaders, and that was the consequence of our sin, my sin, your sin, the sins of the world. He was rejected for us. That's how Jesus is the good news. So let's look on, let's go to the part where he was rejected. Now he suffered, but he also was rejected. Jesus is the good news because when he was rejected, he was rejected for us. We deserved to be rejected by God because of our sin. But because Jesus was rejected in our place, we have the privilege of being accepted, even adopted into the family of God. That's because Jesus was rejected. He was rejected for us. And I know that Jesus is the good news because when he was killed, he was killed for us. <laughs> the consequence of our sin, as the scriptures say, is death. But because Jesus is the Christ, he was worthy to be the spotless lamb who would die in our place. So he died for us. And finally, as Jesus described, I know that Jesus is the good news because when he rose again, he rose again for us. His resurrection life means that I and, and, and you, if you've received Jesus, have resurrection life too. Our new life is symbolized in that baptism that we partake in, and it's the result of Jesus' work for us. Death could not keep Jesus in the grave, and now Jesus 
cannot die. His eternal life is proof of our own eternal life found in him. And all these fearful ways that Jesus describes the Christ's work are good news for us. And they're all found in Jesus, who is the good news. Church of Prophet proclaims the good news that Jesus is the good news and that's, at that, he's way better than a prophet and he's way better than an earthly king. So after hearing all this, don't give in to the temptation to underestimate Jesus' work or his divinity or his identity as the Christ as we are so often tempted to do. Search the reality of Jesus' identity in Scripture. Don't make the mistake that some of the Jews made. Search the truth of Christ in Scripture, even the parts that are hard to read. It's all written down for us to read in the Bible. Jesus is no mere man, as the crowds thought. Jesus is our God. He is our king, a king better than any Jewish rabbi could have ever imagined, and a, king, a Christ better than even Peter probably had in mind when he made his confession. But he would soon find out. Remember, remember what I said at the beginning of my sermon? There are certain things that people have high opinions about, but then experiencing the truth is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. The truth of Jesus is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. I have one more supporting truth that helps us understand that Jesus is the Christ who suffered and rose according to God's plan. Number three, Jesus didn't just predict these glorious events. He planned them. He planned them. (laughs) When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ of God, Jesus immediately commanded them not to say anything to anyone about that part of his identity. I mean, when you read that, you kind of go, why? (laughs) Why it seems like a good investment to start this story early if people are being convinced of it, right? So why would he ask this? Why would he ask this of of the disciples? And how does this indicate that he planned the mission all along? Well, since the Jews believed the Christ would be a a king with an earthly throne, the Jews would have pushed him into the public arena far too quickly. It would have been really frowned upon by Rome, and the humble plan that led to suffering and sacrifice would have been compromised. That's why he told them not to say anything. He had a plan in mind, and he didn't want them to destroy it. Jesus knew this, and predicting the impulse to rush a plan that did not fit God's plan, he commanded the disciples to keep that news secret. Jesus, in other words, is well aware of what needs to happen to, for God's plans to succeed. So what can we gain, what can we gather from Jesus' foreknowledge that he displayed? Let me allow, you to, allow me to point you in the right direction in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Our answer is found here. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his what? His will. Now, if there's a lot of emotions wrapped around that verse in our society, in our Christian world, so if you're distracted by the use of that verse in the Calvinism-Armenian conversation, just, just do me a favor, ignore that and pay attention to the words themselves, okay? This is it in a nutshell. He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world according to the purposes of his will. So when you read that verse and then you watch Jesus preserve his mission by telling the disciples to keep quiet, the truth is very clear. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity who planned these events long before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the sovereign king who is in control of the universe that he created. It is undeniable that Jesus knew what was going to happen and that this was his plan all along. Church, do you see the glory of Jesus just keep getting brighter and brighter and brighter as we dive into the word of God and see what, he's done, what he is for us? Just bear with me for a second. I'm going to go through that just one more time, but I'm going to just bullet point it for you. I'm just going to spell it out. The identity of the long-awaited Christ is Jesus, right? And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity with the Father and the Son, God of God's light from light, right? Okay, the triune God, that God is our salvation. And before the foundation of the world, they, this, this triune God planned it at the cost of Jesus' suffering instead of our own suffering. Do you know what that means? Church, do you know what that means? That means that God loves you. That means that God has, he loves you and he always has. From before the foundation of the world, he foresaw you, he knew he'd create you, and he loved you. He put his love on you when he died on the cross knowing that you would sin against him and that I would sin against him, and he gave his love to us back before the foundation of the world. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ of God, but the Christ of God was more glorious than anyone could imagine because he is the God who is love. And you know what? Man, Peter messed up big. Again, if you're familiar with the story, Peter messed up big. And when you read about him, you know, messing up, you find out that Jesus still loved Peter even after he left Jesus to die on a cross. So if you're here today and you have rejected Jesus throughout your whole life, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how many times you've rejected him, if you have rejected Jesus, he still loves you. 
And if you don't love Jesus in return after hearing all of this wonderful news planned before the foundation of the world, can I be so bold as to make a claim for you? You just need to look a little closer. Peter saw closer than almost any other human being, maybe other than Mary, and he was so convinced that he was willing to die, on, die a horrible death proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. And I too, I too, Kelly Graham, confessed Jesus is the Christ. I've experienced the goodness of Jesus that we're about to sing about, and I cannot deny it. There's too much that has gone in my life to not recognize that Jesus loves me and that he is the Christ. I'm no Peter, I'm no apostle, and sometimes I feel more like Thomas the apostle who doubted the truth until he had to come to reckon with it face to face. For me, often it's a trial, a tribulation, but Jesus always proves himself to me when I read about him in scripture. So if you're an unbeliever here today, can I encourage you to confess that Jesus is the Christ? The truth of what you confess, you may not know the whole story. It may be a little foreign to you and you're like, that's a lot, I don't know if I wanna claim that because there seems to be a lot wrapped up in that. Can I just tell you that if you proclaim him as the Christ and you dedicate yourself to it, you will see that that confession becomes more clear the longer you follow him and that's exactly what happened to Peter. I'm 40, I've been following Jesus since eight and I still learn about him every single day. And if you have already confessed Jesus as the Christ like I have, I would encourage you well, let me, let me ask you a question, okay? I wanna ask this with care. Have you confessed Jesus with your lips to others? And have you lived under the authority of that truth? Because it is one thing to confess Jesus with your mouth and it's a whole other thing to confess him with your life because the truth of Jesus being the Christ does, demands a response, does it not? Because if Jesus is the Christ, then that means that we live in submission to him, not in submission to our own authority. So are you, if you have been a, a believer in the Christ, are you someone who has spoken with your lips but not with your life? It's good to do this self-reflection, church. I promise you, as your associate pastor here, that I will walk out this confession with you. I will fail, same as you. But church, can we do this together? Can we walk out this confession together? The name of this church is grace for a reason. God's grace is greater than all of our sins and our salvation is as certain as Christ's eternal life. Walk this path with me. Through failures and successes, walk this path with me. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ and Christ was absolutely worthy of that confession even though he didn't understand all of what that would entail. And he's worthy of your profession of faith too. 
He's worthy of mine. Jesus is the genuine article. Jesus is the Christ, and I am so convinced and so in awe of this truth that I will spend my life as an evangelist for Jesus Christ. So join me in this effort to proclaim the glory of Jesus to the world. Join me. Do it not just here. Do it out in your workplaces and in the public spaces. He is worthy of your proclamation and your life. Join me in this because Christ truly is worthy. Now during this last song, feel free to come up. I'll tell you what. John Buzz will be in the back. Uh, Greg will probably be in the back as well. Uh, and if you would like to ask any questions about this particular text or the sermon, I, w- I would love to, to answer those questions if I can. And Greg will be in the back. John will be in the back. Ask questions of them during this song. And if you would like prayer for anything, not just this sermon, please go back there. They would love to pray with you. And I'll be standing up here at the end of the service after we lead this song, ready to speak with you as well. But if you are somebody who has not proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, now is a great time to do that. Go tell somebody, tell the pastor, tell me. We'd love to walk with you and disciple you along the way with that confession. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a song about the goodness of God. Father God, your son is the Christ of God. Your son is God incarnate. Your son, your son son planned this story all along and he was so committed to it that he succeeded because there was no plan B. This was what you planned before the foundations of the earth. Thank you for the son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Because we have this sacrifice in Jesus, because Jesus is the good news, we can walk out of these doors singing songs of joy, singing about the goodness, and we can talk to other people about it because this is the hope of the world. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that. I pray that we would live under the, under the authority of that truth that Jesus is the Christ. Motivate us where we are not motivated. Where we lack faith, give us faith. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.